rest of us, we are coming back uh, once again to, to this slow walk that we have been doing through the Gospel of John, this ancient account of the person of, of Jesus of Nazareth, this ancient account of one of his disciples as he reflects on what it means to live in Christ. But it's, it's a funny thing because it's a book that perhaps more than any other in the Bible is focused on this concept of life. And yet, this entire back half of the book is, is told. The story is told in the shadow of death. The shadow of the death of this Jesus that was coming. The, this imminent death that was approaching. And so what does it have to say about life? And how can life live in the shadow of death? We start here this morning in chapter 11. Start reading in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, we, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already, had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could he, not, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, the story of this account is, is almost too strange and wonderful. Lord, it almost feels too good to be true in so many ways that there is a hint, that there is a possibility, is that there is a, a claim that life exists beyond death. Lord, I pray that as we consider the account of this story, that we consider what it is that you did in that time and place, Lord, that you would allow us to see you more clearly and to know you and to follow you and to find life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how old you were when the offense of death set in. Like when death felt like a, a, an injustice had been done. For me, it was when I was in the seventh grade. I'd seen death all the way through, uh, even tragic deaths. Uh, a little girl in my first grade class drowned when I was in the first grade. My great-grandparents had been a slowly dying in procession, but in the seventh grade, I don't know if it was just that I got older or if it was the, the slowness and the, the cruelty of his death. But there was uh, my, my dad's first cousin. His name was Dick, Dick Belsley. And Dick was, uh, in my knowledge, just uh, kind of the, the spiritual grandfather of the family. Obviously not at all the patriarch, but he was, he was the guy that, that at every uh, family reunion, right, he was the guy who got asked to, to stand up and to, to pray for the meal, to bless the food. He was the guy that, that would bring fun and excitement. He was uh, a, a man who had lived his life on staff uh, with Campus Crusade on the, the campus of the local university. He was a, a fun guy. He was an active guy. He was uh, a, a farmer who never gave up his roots. And so while he worked... Uh, a full-time job there on the college campus. He tended and, and worked the fields, and he showed it. He was a man of strength, spiritual strength, physical strength. I came across a photo of him 
recently when his kids were probably about the same age as mine, and, and he looked he looked more like a, a college wrestler than he did anything else. Like the, the geometry of his body, it didn't quite make sense. He was strong. He was, he was a health nut. He was concerned at a time when it wasn't very popular to be concerned about what you ate. And, and the exercise fads hadn't quite caught on to the length. He was diligent in working out his body and taking care of his food. He didn't smoke and he didn't chew. And yet... In his mid-40s, with two teenagers at home, the diagnosis of oral cancer rippled through our community. Because you see, he wasn't just a giant in my family, he was a giant in our town. He'd made his name in the field of football, as most people in my small town did. But he cemented his name because of, of the persistent way that he would engage and chase after young men who were on the football team. He was a chaplain at the local university's basketball team. And I will tell you, at his funeral, there were thousands of people, thousands of people who told the story that Jesus found them in their life because Dick pursued them so consistently. And yet, he had cancer. A cancer he did nothing to incur a cancer that he didn't invite through abuse of his body, but a cancer that started to eat away at him. And so the, for the first time, my little junior high self started to think about life and death, and I got to watch as this man walked farther and farther or closer and closer to death's door. And it just seemed wrong. It seemed unfair. It was the first time that I remember praying and not knowing how to pray. My Sunday school self wanted to pray for him and, and say, God, heal him. But yet there was something in me, maybe you've felt it too, something in me that was afraid to pray the prayer, God, heal him, because I was afraid that God wouldn't heal him. And if God didn't heal him, could he really love him? If God didn't bring him freedom from his illness, could he really be the good God? And so I was afraid to pray. We come here to this text to two sisters who weren't afraid to pray. They prayed for the healing by sending a messenger to their friend Jesus off in a distant city. In their message, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It was a statement, but the, the, the question behind it was clear and it was Obvious, Lord, out of your love, won't you come heal our brother? Lord, because you love him, won't you come bring healing? And then we tell the story in which Christ's love would indeed drive him to engage, and it would drive him to interact, but he would do so in a very different way and in a different road than what they wanted, different than they expected. So we're going to look this morning at three different ways that we see what Jesus' love drives him to do. And the first is obvious that Jesus' love, Jesus loves these women. He loves his friend Lazarus too much to give them what they want. He loves them too much to give them what they want. The request was clear, Jesus, come and heal. And yet, there's this curious phrase that happens in verse 5. First, it tells us, now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. 
So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Did you hear that? He loves Lazarus, and so he stayed two days longer when they asked him to come bring healing. He loved them, and that love drove him to do what they did not want. The fact that it would feel like the opposite of love is driven home in this story numerous times. You can hear the villagers, right? When they come in verse 37, after Lazarus has died, and they say, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Jesus, if you had just come when we asked you to come, you could have prevented this. Or in the words of the the sisters, Lord, if you had been here, if you had just done what we asked, my brother would not have died. But there is in this text clearly a, a notion that Jesus was not interested in preventing his death. Not only was he not giving the sisters what they wanted, he didn't give another group of people what they wanted either. You hear the, uh, the, his disciples here in verse 8. Jesus has just escaped from the hands of those who wanted to stone him in Judea. And so when Jesus says two days later, yes, let's go to Judea, they immediately are afraid for their lives. Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there? Jesus, are you out of your mind? Don't you know what this could mean for us? When Jesus says he's fallen asleep, the disciples are like, oh, good, good, he's asleep. He'll wake up on his own. We don't need to go. But when he commits, they said, let us go that we may die with him. You see, the disciples, too, are interested in preventing death, namely their own death. And yet Jesus, in the mystery of his decision, decides to not grant their request either. It's like the the sisters wanted him to come, the disciples wanted him to not go, and somehow Jesus found a way to give neither group what they wanted. Neither one of the groups got what they asked for. He somehow finds a way uh, to choose the worst possible option for everyone involved. He delays his going so that Lazarus dies, and yet he goes into the throats of danger. If this is love, it sure doesn't feel like it. It sure doesn't feel like he's showing his love. I remember uh, in seminary, I had an ethics professor, and he was talking about parenting, right? And he, he gave his, uh, his uh, paradigm for how he would walk through a discipline scenario with his children. And he said up front, listen, this is not a prescription. This is not a formula. Um, so, of course, I went home immediately that night and started using it as a formula, right? And one of the key phrases of this formula is that as he was, was handing down the discipline to his children, he would say to them, I love you too much to let you think it was okay to hit your brother. I love you too much to let you think it was okay to lie to your mom and dad. I love you too much to let you yell and scream out loud. I love you too much to let you think that it's okay to call other people names. And maybe you've experienced something like this. For me, it wasn't quite that explicit. Uh, it would be as my dad leaned me over his, his lap, um, and he would say, I don't want to do this. 
And I would say, well, then we're all on the same page here, right? You don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. We're all together here, right? There's no need for a spanking, right? This will hurt you more than it hurts me. Did anyone hear that growing up, right? It's an obvious uh, infuriation, and, and so, uh, and I can tell you, uh, I love you too much to think that it's okay. It, it has the same provoking effect, right? The, 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 the same effect it's had on the child. It almost provokes an anger response. You don't love me. Look at what you're doing to me. You don't love me. You can't possibly love me. And so when we see our sister and our brother, our babies uh, in the womb, our husbands and fathers and aunts and uncles, as we watch them suffer the pains of life and the suffering of death, we say, Jesus, you can't surely mean that you love us. And so for some of us, it's a, a feeling of resentment, maybe quiet. Maybe you don't say it out loud, but a resentment that God didn't show up when you prayed and you asked him to. Maybe it's anger, and you lash out at God for not giving you what you asked for. Maybe it's despair that all is lost, or loneliness that you're all alone, that God has forsaken you. But in all of those ways, we respond with the, the vehement, antagonistic spirit towards God because we don't understand if he loved us, how could he let this happen? But Jesus doesn't just say he loves them so he won't give them what they ask. He shows them their love in another way. Jesus loves them too much to stay away. Jesus postpones his death. He doesn't come, intentionally does not come to heal Lazarus before his death, but he loves them too much to stay away. We see it most clearly in our story when Jesus uh, confronts the sister Mary, the second sister to interact with him, and we see that Jesus comes both physically and emotionally. You see, when he, he dealt with the older sister, when he dealt with Martha, he, he was able to maintain his composure. But in verse 33, it says this, that when Jesus saw Mary weeping, when he saw the tears running down her face, and he saw that the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That he was so moved and overcome with emotion when he saw their pain that he exhibits a, a, a weeping that happens. It's every uh, Sunday school kid's favorite verse in the Bible because it's the shortest, right? Jesus wept. But it doesn't just say that he wept. It says that he was deeply moved. Now, this is a, a, an interesting turn of phrase because uh, it's, it's a curious word. It's not just a normal, he had an emotional response. It's a word that, that packs a, a punch, normally uh, an anger punch. It's a word that's used uh, of the snorting of horses. It's a, it's a word of, of emotion so deep and so powerful, uh, in anger, in outrage, in indignation, that such a thing could be occurring, that is deeply moved, is that his body is revolting against this very notion. And so the question that's asked is, what makes Jesus so angry? Why is he so sad? 
What is he furious about? Is it that he's upset at the disbelief of his followers? I can't fathom it. I can't fathom it because as a whole, his followers have shown quite a bit of faith, actually. What it said makes a whole lot more sense to me is that he is angry that death exists in the first place. That he is upset because he knows that this death ought not exist at all. But it's a curious emotion to have because if you or I, like if you were at the grocery store, right? And you were behind a person who, who goes to pay for their groceries and, and after their cards are declined and after they pull out all the loose change in their pockets, they realize they don't have the money to pay for their food, right? And if you sitting there in the line say, I see this great anguish, I see the tears that are running down their face, but I know that in my pocket I've got a credit card. Right? You know that you can come and swoop in and you can save the day, then you are not very likely to weep with that person, are you? Instead, you're much more likely to say, oh, let me help. Oh, I've got the solution. Oh, I've got the answer. You would only weep with the person if you felt like you had nothing else to offer. But wouldn't it be possible to look at that person to see the indignity that they are being forced to live, to, to, to see the pain, the frustration, the embarrassment. And you can look at them and you can be so angry that such poverty exists in the world. You can look at them and not just feel empathy, but that you can feel anger at their plight because one ought not be in a position where they can't provide food for their family. One ought not live in a world where there is such indignity and stares and heartbreak. You could look at them and you can weep because the, the, the solution does not do away with the problem. The problem is that it exists in the first place. And so we see Jesus looking here at Mary and then looking again when he comes to the tomb and seeing death in the eye. And Jesus weeps. He boils in anger that such a thing could, list, lift in, could exist in the world. It's a funny thing in this story because John could have cut out that whole part. John didn't need to tell us about Jesus weeping to tell the story of Lazarus' resurrection. He could have skipped straight from Jesus saying, I am going to, to raise him again, or straight from telling Martha, your brother will rise again to the tomb where he calls and does exactly that. But John puts us this picture of Jesus weeping, sobbing in our minds, because John wants this picture to be emblazoned in our minds. You see, if the picture of Jesus... Weeping is not in the, the Rolodex of your brain, then you will see Jesus, that's the action Jesus, the justice Jesus, the confident Jesus, who says, I go to awaken him. Your brother will rise again. And in the matter of the pain and the sorrow that you feel as you look at death, you would feel like you're a fraud, like you have some lack of faith to feel the pain and the anguish of the situation. But if you can see the weeping Jesus, you can picture his tears and his anger and his frustration, then you will no longer feel resentful for him and then feel blamed because you're sad. Instead, you will be free to be with him in your anger. 
You see, without a picture of a weeping Jesus, if Jesus is only strength and confidence and the Savior of the day, then you're still left with your question of how can this really be love? But if you see that Jesus is weeping with you, then you have to conclude that there's something else going on here. There's something else to the story. And whatever the reason is, whatever the reason is for his delay, whatever the reason is for him not giving you what you want, he's right in the thick of it with you. The pain and the sorrow that he weeps here is not done to you but one that you do with him. Because you see, this whole story prefigures the death that Jesus himself will die. The pain and the tears that he will shed in the garden because he will know the pain that we know. That there is no sorrow in our world that he is not intimately aware of. So Jesus loves them enough to not give them what they ask for. He loves them enough that he won't leave them alone, but Jesus also loves them too much to let them live without a resurrection. You know, in their uh, in the complaints, right? In in the 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 language of couldn't the man who who opened the eyes of the blind let this man live? If we could have just avoided death, right? If he would have come when they asked and avoided death, if he would have not brought his disciples straight in the harm's way, if he could have avoided death, then there would be life. It's this kind of calculus that you might use in as you look at the sick and the weak, the failing ones you love. And so you think, well, why would he do that? But you see that Jesus sees the life that would exist without resurrection, and he realizes that it is not life at all. The avoidance, the kind of life you get from avoiding death is the same pattern and weakness and brokenness and sorrowful life that you've known before it. But that there is something in the death that leads to a new life. Jesus says at the very beginning of this passage, he tells his disciples, it is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through it. It's a phrase that can almost sound harsh or or calculated, and we're trying to understand what it means. And all through the story, there's this emphasis, emphasis on the crowd seeing what Jesus is doing. And so when he comes to the tomb, right, He's praying to God, and he, he prays a very like self-conscious prayer, right? Did you, did you all hear this? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Well, I knew you would always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me, right? It's a, a little bit of a strange prayer for the moment. But Jesus is focused on making sure that all eyes are looking on him. Why? Is it for vanity? Is it for popularity? Is it so that the tale would be told for a thousand generations? No, it's that he wants us to see where our life is. To see with our very eyes that death is not the end. To see with our very eyes that there is life that transcends the death that we know. Jesus does this to make sure all eyes are on him so when they see Lazarus come out of the tomb, they will know what their future is. That we too one day will hear the voice, the trumpet call from our father as he beckons us to come out of the grave. 
You see, the, the eyes are there not so that we can find relief from our death like Lazarus, but so that we can find fulfillment of our death like we will in the final resurrection. You see, the body, the Bible tells us this story that Jesus has died and defeated death so that he could come back. That he could come back and bring us into a new heavens and a new earth with bodies that were, are imperishable, with bodies that are no longer prone to rotting and disease and heartache, to bodies that live in a new heavens and a new earth. This body must die so that it can be remade. But Jesus just doesn't want, just want them to see their future. He wants them to see their present. And this brings us finally to the words he says to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Remember, Martha had just told Jesus, I know that Lazarus will rise again in some long-off, distant far-off world where, where, where at the end and at the last day God raises the people, but yet that doesn't bring her much solace. But what Jesus wants her to see as he raises Lazarus from the dead is he wants her to see that resurrection is not some just an action. It is a person. That the life which he bestows, on, which he will bestow on us on the final day is a life that he intends for us to interact with now because he is the resurrection. And to engage with him is to engage in a new life. The implications are enormous. And, and in fact, I think much of the rest of John is, is written so that we would contemplate what this new life is. The life of the resurrection that we experience now. Before our deaths. But I think at least one point is obvious here that we no longer need to be avoiding death, thinking that it's the best thing that we can do. We no longer have to live in this life conscious and aware and afraid that our, this life and this body will come to an end. That there is a freedom to live in the world we're knowing that yes, our body will perish, but our life is found and hidden in Christ. That there is a, a way of living that no longer needs to, to, to orchestrate itself around the preservation of life devoid of the power of the resurrection because the fact that the resurrection is real changes our calculus on doing everyday life. When I thought of, of what this life might look like, I came back again to the picture of, I guess, my cousin, Dick. You see, Dick, uh, his, his oral cancer continued to eat away at him and literally eat away with him. The tumor uh, started to grow, and, and, and in short order, by the end, it had engulfed his entire right-hand side of his face. This once uh, strong, capable farmer and farming hands shrunk down into uh, the size of, of, of a small child. His weight was under 100 pounds. The one eye was basically shut from the size of the tumor as it pressed on both sides. His mouth was, was immobilized from the tumor such that he, he carried around a giant towel that he held up to his face everywhere he went to catch the drool and the snot 
as it leaked out from his body, he struggled to breathe. He struggled to talk. And yet in Dick's dying months, in those months as, as the community shirked back in fear and was terrified of what death would bring, Dick did not. He didn't shrink back out of self-consciousness or embarrassment for the way his face had been grotesquely distorted. He didn't shrink back from fear over the pain of dying. He didn't shrink back out of bitterness or anger to God, but instead he did the opposite. He didn't hide in his house, but he continued to put himself in the middle of lives and relationships with people, knowing his death was coming, but knowing it was not the end. And so Dick would, would, would come and he would sit at the, the Metamora basketball games because his 16-year-old daughter was cheering on the sideline. And he, there's this picture of him sitting in the stands holding the towel shriveled up. And you can see everyone around him is standing up and cheering for whatever just happened in the game. But he, he didn't have the strength to stand up and cheer anymore. And Dick, as long as he was able to talk... And I've heard accounts and accounts and accounts that over this period, as he met with groups, and he, he, as long as he had a voice to speak, he told anyone who would listen that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Dick knew that the cancer could rob him of his body, but it could not rob him of his life. Because his life was hidden with Christ and God. For some reason... That Dick does not know, and neither do I. The Lord did not answer when we called for him to come bring his healing. For some reason, the Lord decided to delay his coming to, to, to relieve Dick of that pressure. For some reason, the Lord has not, in his good wisdom, chosen to call Dick out of the grave. To say, Dick Belsley, come out of that grave, for there is new life to be had. But one day he will. Jesus loves Dick Belsley too much to leave him there. And Jesus loves us too much to leave us either. Pray with me. God, as we think of those who we have watched death eat away in front of us, as we mourn the injustice and the indignity of death in this life, Lord, as we question and we search for answers for why you are doing what you do, Lord, I pray that this small glimpse at your love, this small glimpse that you, you cared for these people and that you care for us will reside in our hearts, Lord, that the afflictions and sufferings that you endured on this earth, Lord, I pray that you, we would know that they are for us and for our good. And Lord, lead us till you once again come back and lead us to the new resurrection and the life to be had in you. For all this in Jesus' name.